to the fullest all day or day. And it is what it is. Feel me? <laughs> hey, folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to Terrence Sanders. How's it going today, Terrence? It's pretty good. I just got done with brunch. What? I know, and I didn't even drink. Well, I, if that's... <laughs> Congratulations on that. And where did you go? Uh, to Waterworks. Do you go there often? Uh, I've been there three times since I've lived here. I don't know if that's often, per se. Well, you haven't lived here that long, have you? Four months as of last week. See, I feel like so more familiar to you than four months, but that's me. That's my own thing. My job says that, too. It's like, oh, it feels like you've been working here for years. Cause <laughs> and I feel like that. Because you work hard. And I play hard as well. Terrence, take us back. To 1963. Tell us about um, the year you were born. Okay, well, let's, <laughs> let's just start real clear. My mother was born in 59, so if I was born in 63, there are many questions that I have. Uh, but a little bit about me. I was born and raised in good old Rochester, New York um, in 1987, March 14th, 1987. A beautiful Pisces is what I would like to say. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I... Grew up in Rochester, but I didn't live there my whole life. Like, at the cusp of sixth, of sixth grade, I moved with my mother and my youngest sister to Albany, New York. And then was in Albany for a few years, and then I guess my mother got tired of not being around her own family, and instead being around my sister's father's family. So we moved back to Rochester, where I felt like it was horrible because I don't feel like you should move student like moving during high school is hard because everyone already knows each other. So. I came in as the lone star in 10th grade, but I made some lifelong friends. We like in group texts. We talk all the time. <laughs> Love that. So um, how was Rochester like for you growing up? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I had two different experiences. So my mom and dad were not together. My mom lived in the inner city where I lived. I, I guess people call it the hood mm -hmm. is where I grew up. But every weekend I would go to my dad's house and he was more so suburbs, white picket fence, shrubs, you know, perfectly mowed lawn. <laughs> and I had to mow the lawn and not shrubs, but hedges. And I had to trim the hedges every weekend. And he would tell me, I never complain about doing anything for you, son. So when you come over, you shouldn't even have to have me ask you to mow the lawn and trim the hedges. You should just go automatically and do it. So I got to the point where I used to literally go and automatically do it. And he's like, oh, you did that today? Uh, yeah, we had a conversation. That's where it started at. Dutiful son. So you, growing up, um, so it was like Rochester and then Rochester adjacent at your dad's place, right? Yeah, to be exact, the suburb was Arondacoit. Good to know. Shout out. To Arondacoit? I don't know. <laughs> Shout out to the 585. It's my area code. Hello. Um, so how did that inform your character, your personality? I think uh, growing up where I grew up, I, I definitely have learned how to make a dollar out of 15 cents. Is you know, the age old saying. 
hustle hard, apparently, you know. Um, but I will say that when I was growing up, all all of my cousins, they all grew up, we all grew up in the same neighborhood, but our lives took d- very different paths. I, the only one who actually uh, went to college, I've, no one else did. I mean, my mother went back when she told me she was bored. I'm like, you should just like get it. I know you dropped out when you were younger. You should just go back and do it. And so she did in her 50s and she got her bachelor's degree, which I think was hard for her because she was always in classes with like 18 and 19 year olds. And she was in study groups with them as well. And she was well over 50 sitting in these classes. But I was proud of her because she pushed through. But for me, I guess um, having the upbringing from my mom and my dad being so separate, like my mom would always be the one, like always make sure that you, because I grew up in a rough neighborhood. So fighting was a real thing. She was one, like, make sure you defend yourself. If someone comes at you, don't back down. My dad, on the other hand, like, you go find someone authoritative and you get this handled. There doesn't need to be anything physical. I know. It was such a juxtaposition of the lifestyles. They're like, I would go to my dad's house and his wife would make like Salisbury steak and mashed potatoes and we eat raw green beans. Then I go home and it's like it's fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, collard greens, like all of that stuff. So I think I've balanced out well with a good mixture of the way that I was raised with my mom, living with her, and then also with my dad. But I think they both raised me to always be respectful and open and receptive to new people. So that's probably one of the biggest things I took away from them. Yeah, so I started high school in Albany, New York, at Albany High School. Um, Because I did middle school in Albany, so I already had like a group of friends. And so we all went to the same school. There was North House and South House. All of my friends, we all got into North House. I don't know why there was a difference. It was just the, it's literally the only public school in Albany city proper. So it's the big, it's huge. It's like a college campus. In my opinion, it's almost the size of a community college. Um, but I started out high school there. And then once we moved back to Rochester, I went to Benjamin Franklin high school, specifically bioscience and health careers Academy. And so at one point I used to want to be, um, a pediatric nurse practitioner. Obviously the classes I took was like intro to medical and uh, medical terminology as well as standard global history and world health, world history and those sort of classes. But they also specified the classes based on the school you were admitted to within that school. So my high school had three high schools and one elementary school all in the same building. So you had a uh, finance and economic, you had global careers and then you have bioscience and then you had the Montessori elementary school which if you were over sixth grade you were not allowed to go to that area which was interesting because you had to go through that area to get to some classes or to get to the calf for lunch but we weren't allowed to like socialize which I don't understand why a high schooler would be socializing with a child anyways per se unless but we I had some friends who had siblings and so they would go down there and check on their siblings but then um, when I graduated, I kind of told my family I was going to leave and never come back. <laughs> and it's not because I didn't like Rochester. I just felt like I needed a different experience. And so I left and I went to Long Island University, the Brooklyn campus. And that's where I started college at. Um, I met one of my one of my very, very close friends. I'm the godfather of her three children. Uh, she's from Plattsburgh. This will get me to where I moved to Plattsburgh. But we started at uh, LIU together, both nursing majors. Um, and we were in this program called the Higher Education Opportunity Program, 
which is a program that if you come from a lower income family, they give you basically additional grants to take away all of the loans that you would take because it was a private institution. But um, we were in that program for about two years. And then I just felt like it was once my dad had taken parent plus loans twice, I just felt like the cost that was associated with the school wasn't worth the experience. And so me and my friend Shannon, she convinced me to move to Plattsburgh, New York. And then that's where I ended up going to Plattsburgh State. And that's where I actually am a alumnus. Because do you know, if you say alumni, it's plural. And alumnus is more so for male identifying. And alumnae is female identifying. I know, it's crazy. But I learned this a few weeks ago. So if you have someone who ever says they went to college and they call themselves an alumni, that means that they're talking about themselves in plural. Just as an FYI. A little knowledge there. So it would be all in the family if it were alumni. Yeah, it would be encompassing more than just one person. So let's talk about your time at where in Plattsburgh? What's the name of the school? Uh, Plattsburgh State. Plattsburgh State. Yeah, State University of Plattsburgh. Uh, I feel like my experience was because in LIU, I lived on campus and had that traditional living on campus experience when I moved to Plattsburgh. Me and my then partner, he was not in the same He was not in school at the time, so I couldn't get a place on campus. So I moved off campus, but I worked full-time while I was a full-time student. And um, it was fun. So I didn't do all of the parties or a bunch of things on campus. I wasn't that involved, but I still had friends within class, and I would just go and have the essentially the college life downtown. Kind of like here, what students do here, and now that I'm the adult, I'm like, oh, the college students. Now I know why people used to look at me like that, <laughs> especially in a smaller town. And Plattsburgh's like half the size of here in Burlington. So you sort of made a name for yourself as a party goer in Plattsburgh. You know, I was a socialite. Right. Yeah, a social know. butterfly. And I still think that carries on with me everywhere I go. You and me. <laughs> I did not know that song. Did you just Spread make it up? Spread your wings from Okay, it's sounding a little familiar, but it's a classic Mariah Carey song. Oh, I love MC. Um, so I know that you are a experienced world traveler. Did that start during your time at Plattsburgh State or after that time? Uh, I think once I got to Plattsburgh and realized that there wasn't a lot going on besides college. Mm. I did, me and my partner, he was from Connecticut. We mm-hmm. met when we lived in New York. Um, so I would either go back and forth to Rochester to see family, or we would be in Connecticut a lot, seeing his family, Connecticut and New York. And then every spring break, I thought I was doing big things, right? We were going to Miami. Woo, partying in a city where the heat is on. On a budget. <laughs> on a college student budget. Budget. But it was still fun. I mean, we went, I went, so that's where it started. But I think most of the traveling is once I, I didn't actually be a world traveler until I went to, until I moved from living in New Mexico, but we're like jumping all around. Are we, are we leaving out in New Mexico? No, no. Plug that back in. Before New Mexico, there was another state as well. This is post Plattsburgh. Yeah. So after I graduated from Plattsburgh, Mm -hmm. me and my best friend, we had not been around each other for so long so we're like oh we want to like live somewhere together and i'm like i'm like oh i would love to live in dc and he was like me too but our post bachelor's degree salary did not afford dc and we landed in baltimore maryland 
And that's kind of where I got my start in my actual career within higher education itself. So I was working as a uh, – everyone knows who Sylvan is, right? Sylvan Learning is like a two educational company. So I worked for their sister company, which was Educate Online. And so they did supplemental educational services. And so I worked with diff- very, various school districts for the area that my program manager was over. And we basically got contracts for those students who didn't – um, meet the requirements per se and um, their testing for math and reading and writing and they got free tutoring and so it was government funded they shut the program down a few years ago I think they made all these budget cuts but that's where I kind of got it started and then from there I ended up work, getting a job right next door for Laureate Education which owns Walden University and I was a student support coordinator and so f- that's when I was living in Baltimore and I was there for about three and a half years I would say which was I was your time in Baltimore. I enjoyed it. Um, it was also I think when I think back to like people always say home is like where the heart is. Mm. I think Baltimore for me that DMV area because it was my first time. Like I had lived away from family, but I had like a real job, like a full time job with benefits. <laughs> and then I had my own apartment, and me and my partner at that time we were like really like living it up. We didn't do we did traveling around the states per se, nothing international. But that was like for me where I came into my own adulthood and kind of started getting a good vibe and feel for how I wanted things to be and how I wanted my life in theory to lead. And so um, Baltimore was good. And I probably would not have moved there, moved from there if I hadn't gotten a job offer in New Mexico, because from Baltimore, I transitioned to New Mexico. Albuquerque. Santa Fe. Santa Fe. Excuse the fuck out of me. Um, Santa Fe is... The capital. Because everyone thinks Albuquerque is. You said it. Is one of them the capital and one is the largest city and they're different? Yeah. So Santa Fe is the capital. Actually, Santa Fe, in theory, in reference to like the lay of the land, reminds me of here in Burlington. Um, Albuquerque is the largest city in the whole state, though. But uh, Santa Fe, ironically enough, is the highest capital in the united states in reference to altitude oh really yeah i don't know if that makes any difference but it's cute no it is it's quaint it's quiet um it's a lot of old money there like there and it's a lot of movie stars there and then when i was living in new mexico that's when hollywood was really banging and booming but people were finding other locations to do a lot of filming and so a lot of movies and tv shows were actually filmed right in between Santa Fe and Albuquerque, New Mexico itself. I was an extra in uh, Independence Day resurgence. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Party in the city where the heat is on indeed. Wow. Will Will Smith Smith wasn't there. No, No, Will Smith was not. But um, Miley Cyrus is, they're married now, right? Liam? Liam Hemsworth. Okay. Yeah. He's in it. All right. And... The professor from the original one, he was there. So I got to see Liam at a glance. Does he smell good? So we were at least 500 feet from each other. Uh, he smiled nice. Oh, okay. Um, I also believe Vivica A. Fox was in that one, but I, hey! did, but I did not see her. But I can actually give – I can tell you how that ended up happening. Um, we got an email. So I was in student life at Santa Fe University of Art and Design is where I was working at the time. And so I was the person who sent out all the communications, and I happened to get an email from – someone who was doing casting and they were specifically looking for uh for extras to play in the African village scene. 
And so, you know, I wrote back and I was like, so are you specifically looking for individuals that have a certain hue, um, you know, certain complexion? And so they basically were like, yes, we are looking for folks who are people of color, basically. They don't have to be black, but this is the African village scene. So, so I sent the filler out to basically all the students of color on campus. And then one of the students was an RA, and he was a photography student. So I was like, let's take a headshot of me. I just want to try my luck. I did not make the African villager scene. <laughs> my hue was not dark enough. But they did write back to me, and I was just a standard extra. I don't know if anyone's ever seen the movie. I can talk about it now because it's been out. But there's, like, a scene where there's, like, all these cars that are, like, stuck in traffic. And so me and my then car, my car actually got featured. You can see it on the movie. You don't see me. And I wasn't even with my car. They, like, took me from my car and put someone else at my car. And I was with this guy's daughter. She was my daughter in the movie. And I was in their truck. Which was pretty exciting, but I'm like, oh, I wonder why they didn't keep her, him with his daughter. Like, they split them up. It was kind of crazy. And then, um, so I did it. It was an interesting experience because I worked at an art school, and we had stu- our student leaders in the department had various um, majors I tried to support in all ways. So I actually, when I went, my boss let me take the day off to actually experience that because I also took three students with me. And so they asked me to come back the next day because my car was in there, and they wanted to use it again. But I'm like, I, I can't leave. I mean, I can't leave work. Sorry. It's not, not going to be able to happen. But it was an interesting experience. I've never had to see the same scene done in 95 different camera angles. And we as extras could not talk, but we had to mouth to make it seem as if we were talking. But words cannot come out of our mouths because I guess as an extra, if you are talking, they have to pay you a higher premium. Otherwise, we got paid the minimum wage per hour. Hollywood, am I right? <laughs> but it, like I said, it was fun, but I I definitely don't know if acting is my thing. Um, because like I said, the same scene was shot for 11 hours, and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, how long does it take to make this movie if you're doing one scene with all these different angles? And it was like an all-day thing. And the whole movie is almost basically done on blue screen. And so the cars are lined up and you can see nothing. But then on the movie itself, it looks like there's this amazing background and like all this land. And I'm like, we were literally inside of a studio. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, you ever saw the movie Whiskey Tango Foxtrot? Um, Yeah. No, I I didn't see it, but I know you heard of it. Mm -hmm. So that movie, there was two states filmed that in New Mexico as well, specifically in Santa Fe. But there were. The opening scene where there's like uh, the party where people from all different nationalities and backgrounds are there. They filmed that on the campus that I worked at inside of the library. I was not an extra in that, but I got to go in and see them filming. And there's one part. Now you have to go and watch it. There's one part where like Tina Fey, some woman bumps into Tina Fey or something like that. And she's like, bitch. So I went and I got to see that part and I got to meet Tina Fey. But the part that sucked is because they kept doing it over and over and over. I was stuck there and I missed a meeting because <laughs> I couldn't like run down in the middle of their scene. Yeah. Interesting experiences. I'll say RIP that meeting. I didn't get in trouble. I did send a text and say, I'm stuck inside of this scene. And my boss was like, Oh, why didn't you tell me I would have came with you? Tina Fey is holding me up. Uh, yikes. <laughs> I know. How many of us can say that? None. Literally just you. I think I guess everyone else who was also stuck there. 
To be fair, yeah. To be fair. Yeah. Yeah. So, Albuquerque took you to... Albuquerque just took me back to Santa Fe because that's where I flew into and out of. <laughs> I meant... <laughs> but I get you. So, from, Albu- from New, Mexico, New Mexico. From New Mexico, I then... Um, relocated back to New York State, and I moved to uh, New York City, back to New York City. So I was living there for college, and I then went there to go work at a college, Manhattan College. I took that job while I was going through a security clearance to for a job in the United Arab Emirates. And so I worked in, I was back in the city for, I say, maybe four months, and then finally I got the phone call that said you passed the clearance. No one can tell you what they actually search for within this clearance because it's done by their government. But it's just like, oh, we can't offer you the job until you come back cleared to be able to move here. And so I got offered the job, and then me and my colleague, we trained out of New York University's office in New York for a month. And then on July 22nd, July 22nd, we got on a plane of 2016 (laughs) and made our way to the United Arab Emirates, which was, besides going to Canada, and I don't want to discount Canada, but because I grew up in Rochester and I was in school in Plattsburgh, you know, it's just like the yeah. borders right there. Mm-hmm. But I I didn't even have a passport when I applied for that job and <laughs> interviewed. And so I had to, like, do the whole rush process because they needed all of that information. And then when I got there, it was, like, hot as hell. Hot as fuck, to be exact. I remember the day. It was 137 degrees, but it felt like one. 48. Yeah. How does one prepare for that type of temperature? So one doesn't. Um, I think that one just has to sweat. (laughs) Because also the plane was so huge. It's not like the one that they pull up to a gate. The plane like parks on the tarmac and then there's certain levels. So my job flew me out and it was also my first time being fancy because we got flown um, excuse me, flewed out business class. And so it was like the whole pod. And I was like, people can tell that I had never done that because everyone, I'm like taking photos and videos on like FaceTime my mom before the plane took off. I'm like, mom, you see this? I'm like, I got pajamas. <laughs> and, and I had a whole menu. I mean, I was being called Mr. Sanders. They were bringing me champagne. The plane hadn't even taken off. And then once the plane took off, I didn't even know it took off. And when I asked the flight attendant if I could see the other part, she said, you don't need to look back there. Knowing that the next time I flew, I was going to be back there. So I just wanted to know what to expect. But um, it, was, it, it was extremely hot, obviously. But it was also fun. I mean, I was there for two years and three months. It was a very exhilarating time of my life, I'll say. Tell us a couple of highlights of your time in the United Arab Emirates. Um, I think one of the main things is I gained, you know, we all use the term chosen family. Mm. I definitely had a chosen family out there, Mm. Um, and I still talk to them all the time. We're actually all planning a trip to Ghana at the end of this year. Awesome. But uh, that was good. Uh, My job was interesting. I was housing operations for the college students, and so I think that always is a challenge. I feel like even a property – it's almost like property management. No one's going to be happy 100% of the time, but when you take it and you put it to, like, teenagers fresh into college – or people who've never had to share space, it really doesn't make it really made it more challenging. But it was also fun. There, I mean, we used to do pool parties for the students. We've done yacht parties. I know when I was in college, there was no such thing as a yacht party <laughs> or a pool party. But 
it was it was really fun and it afforded me the opportunity to be able to travel because again I had been to Canada but my first time on a plane going somewhere international is when I went to live abroad and I didn't even know what it was like living there I just knew that I was going as an openly gay man to a country where being homosexual was against the law let's talk about that for a minute so I I think in my in my um they call it an informal interview they're like you know is there anything that you want to talk about or access questions anything you say will not change our mind you are the person we want to move forward with and I was like oh I'm I'm like you know, I don't know if there's an elephant in the room. There literally was an elephant in the room, though. The photo behind me on the Skype call had a photo. It was a photo of an elephant. I made a little joke, you know. But I just said to them, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm openly gay. And they're like, oh, that's, you know, a colleague of mine had told them, like, I think everyone, I don't want to say it was assumed, but okay, yeah, you get it. And so he basically said that he told them that he felt comfortable with them saying that, he was he was also openly gay, and he was a student there first. So he did his undergrad through NYU New York, but then he did two years out in Abu Dhabi, and then he um, came back as a professional. And the way he explained it was that he's never felt more safe anywhere else living in the world than he did in Abu Dhabi. And so I took that with a small grain of salt, but I also had a friend that I had went to college to that was openly a lesbian, and she was living out there Um she literally left two days before I arrived. So mm. we had just missed each other. Mm. She had relocated back to the States. But um, even though the, I guess you can't, you can be gay and you can be openly gay. I mean, there's a plethora of openly gay men and women and or individuals they may not identify as either, right? And so that wasn't the issue. I think the main thing was like sodomy is illegal there. So being caught in the act of doing something gay is sex essentially is where the trouble comes in. Um, but I guess I also wouldn't walk around with a shirt that says I'm gay, you, you know, like the certain shirts or anything like that. I would never do that because then that's drawing attention to myself, but I had no issues with being who I was there. Like I didn't have to worry about, am I going to get in trouble if I look, if I present myself as a person who's openly gay, like that was never an issue. And then also working at an American institution within that country, it was also there were, I feel like there was an extra added layer of protection, I would say. But, um, I mean, we even had students at the, institu- at the university that were gay or whatever. And there was a group, I won't say their name, that the school, of, like a student group, that they would have what they call chosen family dinners. And I hosted them at my apart- apartment a couple of times on campus. And we all cooked dinner together. And it, wasn't, and it was just a space where you can be you without having to worry about any judgment, I would say. But other than that, I mean, it was really good. I get there were no gay clubs, but there were great, but there were gay parties. You just had to get in with the folks who would be able to tell you. My first time, it was from Grinder. I went on Grinder, and I needed to know where to get my hair cut. And so I looked for someone on Grinder who was also presenting as a, you know as black or similar to me. I'm like, where do you get your hair cut? He told me where to go, and I went there and I got my hair cut. And then he messaged me like a couple of days later. I'm like, oh, there's going to be a party this week. Is this something you're interested in going to? And I'm like, what kind of party? And he was like, it's a gay party, but it's just not advertised. And so it was at one of the hotels. So I guess I'll rewind for a second. To have alcohol, to serve alcohol there, whether there's a bar, club, or a restaurant, they have to be attached to a hotel. If they're freestanding, they don't serve alcohol because they won't license them. So if there's a hotel affiliated with it, then they'll do it. So it was at on one of the hotels, 
And so I went, he was like, I just need your name. And so then I got nervous. Like, are you going to put my name on a list? Like, I don't want this list going somewhere. So I gave a fake name. <laughs> and then I went to the party and I was, to my surprise, there was like, there was gay people everywhere, but there was like no public display of affection. There's like no dancing with each other, but it's a place to socialize and you get to see others that are essentially like-minded like you. And it wasn't just for gay. There were also girls there as well. I think it was to throw off the fact that this was a boys party. So that, cause the theme was the group was called boys like us. I felt like it should have been men like us, but I'll, I'll back to differ, but it was one of those themes. And the person who organized it, he did a lot of, a lot of hard work and his name was always behind it. And so he was very strict of if you come and you're a man or you have to present as a man, a woman present as a woman. Um, there was one time someone did come, who was in drag and he did not allow them to come in because if the police was called, everyone would have been arrested and then it would have fell on his head. But other than that, like I said, it was, it was pretty fun. I mean, yeah, I loved it. And the winter, which is winter right now, 75 degrees. And so can't imagine I, and that was almost like the perfect time of the year to be there. Although the water was freezing, the like the golf, when you go to the beach, it was freezing in the winter and it was boiling in the summer. In August, there's no don't even touch the beach because it literally is hotter than a shower. Depending on how hot you like your showers, I guess. Some take cold showers. <laughs> Good to know. Uh-huh. So you spent a couple of years in Abu Dhabi, right? Yes. And what brought you to back to the States and specifically to Vermont? So my contract would have ended this year, uh, June. I was on a three-year contract. I did leave a little bit early, and I knew that I was going to be transitioning back to the States. And so I was in the process of kind of like getting myself prepared to put my resume out there and apply for jobs. And because I work in higher education, most institutions won't hire you if you are not able to do an on-campus interview. And obviously there's no way that I was gonna be able to afford to constantly fly back and forth from the, from the UAE to the US. And so a friend of mine that works here had reviewed my resume because there was a position at Princeton that I, have, I wanted to apply to. And I kept dragging my feet. So by the time I got her, my resume got her feedback and went to apply. The posting was closed. But then she was like, oh, you know, there's going to be a position here at UVM. Um, is that something that you'd be interested in? And I said, no, I don't want to move to Vermont. And she said, why? And I said, I went to college in Plattsburgh. I kind of like know the area. And my idea in my head when I came back to the States is I wasn't going to go to a place that was cold nine months out of the year. However, here I am in Vermont. Um, she sent me the job posting, and I'm like, this job is way like above my head. Like, I don't know if I can do this. And so we had like an hour and a half FaceTime conversation just talking about my experiences of working in student affairs and all the things that I've done. And she's like, so what you don't realize is the work that you were already doing is a part of this job. And there are things in this job that's probably going to challenge you. I mean, she was realistic. And obviously, you know I work pretty often. And um, so she was realistic about that. There was going to be a higher expectation. I was going from being uh, operations manager to being a part of an executive leadership team. And so the job is pretty demanding, but that's how I got here. Uh, 
Actually, I arrived on the 3rd of September. I remember that day. Why? Because I got here, dropped my bags off, and got straight in the car with my friends. And we went to Montreal for a couple of days for Drake's concert. Yeah. But um, now I'm here, and it's and since I've been here, I've, I guess I've been somewhere else almost every month, though. Which I was just told that at brunch, like, you're never around on the weekends. And I feel like I am around on the weekends. Do you think I'm not around on the weekends? I mean, on certain ones, yeah. <laughs> but you never lost that wanderlust traveler spirit it's still in you no it, it is i literally am i was telling you before this we started recording um i'm going so i'm going to brazil in march for my birthday um and one of my younger sisters has imposed herself onto my trip with my friend but i gave her the details because if she's gonna come she's gonna come um, but yeah, I have not lost that. And so once I hit Brazil, that would be my 13th country, which I'm excited about. Filling out that passport. Trying to. I'm trying to get it tatted. Stamping it up. Yeah. Actually, you know what's crazy? When I So I, when I went to Germany, I actually wasn't supposed to get a stamp. But because my flight transited through there on my way to Czech Republic, I got a stamp. But when I took the train to Germany, I wasn't going to get a stamp. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to get a stamp. But then I ended up getting it anyways because of my tr- flight had a connection in Berlin, which was I didn't even realize that when I booked it. <laughs> How very special for you. I know. I'm happy for you and your stamp. I've um, just been to Canada as far as international goes. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what this well- what, this what part has it just been Montreal or like um, Quebec City? I've been to Toronto also. Okay, Toronto was great. I went to uh, Pride there a few years ago. I heard their Pride is amazing. It was. It was a big. It was when Rob Ford was both still alive and mayor of Toronto, uh-huh. and he was the first mayor. Um, I don't know since Pride began there, or for many years that didn't attend the Pride. So they were openly protesting Rob Ford during that Pride. I remember that. There were a lot of, like, um, signs with his face on it with, like, devil horns and stuff like that. Things like that, yeah. Wow. I have not been to a Pride in Canada. Although I've heard such good things about Toronto Pride, but I was always living too far, I felt like, to... A hustle and bustle to Toronto at the time. Well, it takes some planning, doesn't it? In it theory. A bit of coordination. We should make a plan to go to Montreal for Pride this year. When is Pride in Montreal? It's, um, summertime? Yeah, it's um, the end of the summer, like August, September vibes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm totally down for that. Okay. I might be going to Montreal next weekend. Because it's MLK weekend, yeah. So... We have that Monday off. So a three-day weekend. Who wants to sit around? They're not going to be celebrating up there, though. No, they're not going to be celebrating up there. A lot of my friends are trying to get me to go to Atlanta because MLK weekend is big in Atlanta. But I want the ticket. It's just way too expensive. And two, I feel like if I'm going to go somewhere else that requires me to get on a plane, it needs to be a place I've never seen unless I'm going to see my mama. You still haven't, you haven't been in Montreal still? Since I I went in September, 
And then when I lived in Plattsburgh, I used to, that's where I used to go to all the concerts at. Uh, so okay. I've been back and forth to Montreal like the whole time because, you know, New York State, you have the enhanced ID. So I used to do that as opposed to having a passport. So I've been to Montreal quite a bit. Now I'm up to speed. Excuse me. Well, you said something about if I have to take a plane there. Oh, no. I'm saying like if for me to go somewhere, for me to get to Atlanta, I have to get on a plane or it's a long drive. So what I said to my friends, if I have to get on a plane, I'd rather go to another city, even if it's in the States that I've never been to, as opposed to going to Atlanta. Atlanta. Hotlanta. Although no one says that. Do you remember that on that one episode of RuPaul Drag Race? And it was the beginning and the one for, and I forgot the one drag queen where she literally had said, Oh, hot Lana and the other one was like, No one says that. Oops. Violet Chotsky, actually. Oops. <laughs> um Let's speak for a moment about your love of fashion. Um why why do you have such good taste and where did you get it from? Wow, I'm probably going to say my mom. <laughs> my mother is a woman who likes to look good at all times. And like when I was younger, it was always like, don't go out the house looking this way or looking that way. Like you always present your best self. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily fashionable. Like for the longest, a white tee, some fitted jeans and a pair of Tim's was all I needed. That was like how it used to be, right? But the moment them Tim's got a scuff, I'm like, I can't wear them no more. <laughs> or even some Air Force Ones, but then they got a crease. I'm like, can't wear them no more. They look bad. Um, but I guess I just like to present myself looking good, per se. Uh, I definitely will say more so once I once my boyfriend Josh at the time, he was really into like, I don't want to say he was a designer, but he definitely had influences from fashion um, pages and all of that. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, well, maybe you can just pick out an outfit for me because, like, you know, I'm going to go plain Jane. And so then with him, it started being like, oh, you should try this or you should try that. I think a lot of it also I used to just be very plain because my weight always has been up and down. And so then I'm like, F it. You can, I can be a thousand pounds or I can be a hundred pounds, but I still can dress and make it all look good. And so, I mean, I don't know. I just like presenting well. And then especially once I was in Abu Dhabi and I became friends with an actual designer himself, I met him and his partner at the gym and he used to like make custom clothes for me and a lot of my friends. And then I would bring people to him and he started getting so much business that he stopped charging me because I was bringing him so much clientele. I have like this suit that I am waiting to debut but I'm probably not going to do it until I'm in Brazil. But it's all from um, fabric that I bought when I was in Kenya. So I don't know. I just like looking good. And then, you know, New Year's, I had the cape. <laughs> I know that you're not afraid of a cape. I know no, that. No, I'm not. You're not cape shy. Mm-mm. I'm not. You know what it is? I'm also not afraid of a print. I think I love print. And I love to mesh prints with other prints that look like they would clash. But it's worked some way, somehow. But do you think I'm fashionable? I said that. I I feel like for you, it's sort of like um, a work of art. It's sort of like, 
you know, you're you're creating when you dress. Yeah, I, I guess I would say that. Um, but I think it's also it's like fun, right? Because there are so many times that you see something someone's wearing on t- like on a runway, and I'm like, oh, that would look cool. I know I can't afford that, but and I'm like, Aku, do you think you can make this? And he's like, yeah, I can make it. And then there it is. It's a replica. It may not be you say Laurent. It may not be Gucci, but it looked good. <laughs> I I would like to take a moment to talk about um, one of your favorite television programs, Ninety Day Fiance. <laughs> um, Obsessed. If you may, just offer. Um, a small piece about what 90 day fiance means to you and why. So I think I stumbled upon the show by mistake. Um, while, whilst I was living in Abu Dhabi. So when I used to live there, I was on call and there was times where it's like a week at a time. I couldn't leave the campus. And so I'm like, Oh, I need something to watch. And I stumbled upon it. A little backstory about the show. It's just about an American who fell in love with someone who's not from their own country. Um, they fell in love via Facebook or one of these other dating websites. There's a different person per episode. It's so each season focuses on certain couples. Each season. So there's also different iterations. So there's 90 Day Fiance, which is on their eighth season now, and I'm watching it. But then there's 90 Day Fiance um, before the 90 Days. So 90 Day Fiance is like if I fell in love with someone who was from Spain and we wanted to be together and we knew we wanted to get married, I'm going to apply for what they call the K-1 visa, and I bring them to the United States. Within that 90 days, we have to get married. If I do not get married, then they have to go back to their country. So this program and each season is sort of like the saga of these different relationships. Of these different relationships. Beginning beginning to end, sort of. Yeah, pretty much. It takes you from the day one when they arrive in the United States, if if it's 90 Day Fiancé. Day one, they arrive to the United States down to the 90 days. Ooh, do they get married or do they not? But then there's 90 Day Fiance before the 90 days. And what's that like? That one is I still fell in love with someone who was from Spain. But instead of me spending thousands upon thousands of dollars to bring them to the U.S., I go to visit them in their country and the cameras follow you. And then there's 90 Day Fiance happily ever after. That's focusing on couples who are on the show, whether it's before the 90 days or the standard 90 day fiance and it's following their lives post marriage to see where they're at. And if the relationships continue, you know, were sustainable or not. Sounds like quite the human drama. It it really is. I mean, sometimes you watch it and you'll see like, I guess, and there's moments where I'm judgy, like, Oh no, they just want to get a green card. They just want to come to America. There's no way that they're actually like into each other. But then there's other ones where I'm like, I'm rooting for them. Like I, I need y'all to work. Like I'm deep, in these relationships as if I'm a part of them. At one point, I did say, like, I'm going to be a 90-day fiancé. So it's a bit of um, escapism for you, would you say? Maybe. But I think reality TV in general is for me because I don't just watch 90-day fiancé. There's also Love After Lockup. (laughs) Look at your face. (laughs) What's Love After Lockup? So Love After Lockup is on season two now. It's basically, which I did not know this, but... um. People who are in prison still, I don't know if it's their loved ones or they get to do it, but they like post ads on like these websites where you can, they're looking for pen pals. And essentially these folks end up falling in love with that person. And upon their release, it follows their life 
to see if that relationship was sustained. So they're saying, so that's why it's called Love After Lockup, because it's giving them a second chance. So I just started on the first season. Oh, well, the second season, but I didn't watch the first season. I feel like I should go back and watch it. But I'm kind of like hooked a little bit, but I'm not necessarily the most hooked. And then there's Married at First Sight. You've heard of that one? So Married at First Sight, I also love because this is like you're being matched with someone. And when you meet them, is at the altar. And then it follows your marriage for eight weeks. So you literally meet at the altar. And then you either say, I do or I don't. And then the camera follows your life for eight weeks. Like the show, you have to choose who's moving in with who, who's leaving their current home to move in with the other person. Or you both leave your place and get a new place together. Um, and it just kind of follows you. And then they have another iteration, Married at First Sight, Happily Ever After, because then they're following the couples who actually decided to keep the marriage going. And they're, they're, this season has is focusing on four pregnant couples. I know. It's a lot. What this is, is it just proves that I don't want to say I'm hopeless. I'm a hopeful romantic. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You like that. <laughs> That was um, a twist I was not expecting. Ah. Speaking of twists, there's this club in Miami called Twist, and I love that place. If you've ever been to Miami, you should go definitely go to Club Twist. That's all. <laughs> it's on South Beach. I've never been to Miami. I've been to um, Key Largo in Florida. Never been to Miami. What's so great about Twist? I just like the fact that it's it was a club. Well, also, it was like one of the few places when I first went there. I was in 21, so we got to take what we can get. Um, <laughs> but I just like it because there's, it's right on Miami. It's on South Beach, but there's all these different rooms. So if you are feeling a little bit of Latin heat, there's one room you can go and you can get that. If you want the hip-hop, R&B, Afro beats, there's another space. Then there's like this random area where you like are just there. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. My first year going to Miami they, and at Club Twist. My then boyfriend at the time was like, oh, you should do it. They had an ass competition where you stand up on the bar and you basically show your ass. You stand there and they determine who has the best ass. And I won. <laughs> and we got free drinks for the rest of the night. Why didn't we start the interview with that? Um, I don't know because it wasn't. We weren't there. And now we are here. And this is where we're at. I guess this is this is this is it. Michael Jackson voice. <laughs> Tell us about Toy Blast. Now I know. Um, <laughs> I think the best part of this is the fact that there was like a little secret eye roll with that because I'm obsessed with that game. I probably am obsessed with too many things. I'm on level 895. <laughs> what? What does that mean? What even is Toy Blast? And why are you so obsessed with it? Why, when we <laughs> hang out, does most of your focus end up on Toy Blast and not my scintillating conversation? Tell us about Toy Blast. I think that we can agree to disagree that I'm focused equally on both. I, I'm a good multitasker. And so... Toy Blast is like Candy Crush at the end of the day. There's no other way to explain it except for it doesn't have the candies. It's just like little other shapes of items, and you're just trying to win the the level. I just get obsessed with the idea of like, oh, I got to the treasure chest, and now I have 48 hours of unlimited lives. Like, go ham. Go crazy on it because otherwise 
when you lose five lives and then I got to wait 20 minutes for another life to replenish. It seems like it's forever, but I will say you'll be proud of me. I haven't opened it in a week, but you just reminded me. (laughs) You've been a week clean from the toy blast, but now you're ready to get back into the swing of things. We'll see. Um, We'll see how the rest of the day goes. Like I'm going to go once I'm going to be home, probably do some laundry, maybe open toy blast. Maybe I won't. It just all depends. And sometimes I forget it's on my phone. And then I go to it. I'm like, oh, you know, now it's time for Toy Blast. Oh, it's 3 a.m. and I can't sleep. We're on Toy Blast. But Toy Blast isn't the only game that you excel at. Tell us about Jenga. (laughs) I am the Jenga whisperer. (laughs) Um, No. And what does that entail? Whispering? Jenga whispering. It, I feel it's just, like it's kind of reminding everyone that there are rules and levels to this shit, right? And so, like, you have some people I won't say names, Reggie, who sometimes like to use more than one hand when they're removing a block. And I personally think that you should just use one hand. Now, if we actually look up the rules, it may not say that, but I've always played it that way, you know. And sometimes you just know by looking at the tower what's the right one to move. <laughs> I couldn't even keep a straight face with that. <laughs> I it's been on more than one occasion where I was enjoying myself in a group setting playing Jenga and Terrence had um I don't know if it was constructive criticism to offer or just criticism. Um so For me, I feel like you present yourself with a certain level of authority, (laughs) and so I'm I'm taking you as such. Uh, Do you have any Do you have any tips for me going further in my Jenga career? I think that in reference to Jenga, you always have to keep your eye on the prize and know that you don't want to make the tower fall, right? right? And that's the whole premise of the game. And so I feel like as long as you use that one hand, left or right, whatever your purpose is. And you move the blocks strategically. You don't just slide it out. You kind of do a little wiggle, but you don't make it shake. And you don't use more than one hand. Yeah, and we and I've reminded folks. Some listen, some don't. I mean, it is what it is. Ironically enough, like all jokes aside, I was at brunch one time. It was called Funch, which is a fun brunch. It was in Abu Dhabi. And that sounds like a Horrible name. Oh, Funch? Well, I rode the mechanical surfboard, the mechanical bull. There was Limbo, and it was real, like, big-ass Jenga. And I was up in there regulating. But this one, I'm like, you can use two hands because there's no way you're moving that big block. I mean, it was life-size Jenga. Like, the tower actually ended up being a little taller than me. Someone had to get on a chair. And I'm like, at that point, we just got to push it over. Funch, indeed. See? And it was life size Twister. Is isn't Twister life size? It was he- bigger than that. It was it was like larger than this carpet. Bigger than life size Twister. Yeah, Abu Dhabi. I better book a flight. Flew out. They actually have a deal going on right now out of JFK to Dubai for four hundred ninety two dollars. Noted. Just as FYI, you still got to get to JFK, but. I'm screenshotting this conversation for a later date. 
Well, you know, I'm a part of like all these low travel groups, and so I get all these flight deals all the time. I regularly see you sort of researching um, flights and hotels and Airbnbs. You're sort of on your shit. Yeah, I just feel like it's so much of the world to see. And you're not trying to miss out. I there are some places I'll definitely miss out on. Um, places that may not need to be named, but there are definitely some places I'll miss out on. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that I do want to see. I guess from living abroad has really sparked an interest in seeing other places to kind of get an insight. Not just like, oh, I want to go here to party, but like I also want to learn a little bit about what's going on in the country and about the culture and do something local. I think my most involved trip when I did that was when me and a group of 11 friends, seven of them I met at the airport, when we all went to Kenya. And that was a trip where it was interesting because it was like, oh, like you're going to Kenya. Like, but we, we went out, obviously, but we went to the markets and we met the Maasai village individuals. And um, our driver was Kenyan. His name was Charles. He was the best in the world. He had a van. He picked us up for everything. If we said we go into the club tonight, Charles was there to pick us up. We was in that big ass van, all 11 of us. Well, it was 12, including me. But we're in a big-ass van. We go into the club or we go into the safari. We went to Giraffe Manor. And then he took us to the village and we met the actual, like, traditional villagers and got to learn a little bit more about the culture. And um, he took us to this restaurant where they – there's not a fork or spoon or knife in sight. Your hands are your utensils. And that was my first time having a ugali, or some folks call it fufu. just depends on the context or the country within Africa that you're in. It's a great – fufu, ugali is more so – I'm trying to describe the the best way. All right. You know grits? And so when grits are left on the stove and they get cold and it's like a more thicker consistency that you can kind of like clump it together, that's the consistency of ugali. And it doesn't necessarily have a taste, but when you use it, you kind of like sop it up with a meat or a vegetable and it takes that flavor. Yeah, it's the easiest way I can explain it. I guess my friend Alvina, she's from Zimbabwe. She makes it like all the time. She would probably be a, a beast at explaining this, but I'm just going based on my American perspective. What does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you, Terrence? Uh, I think I was not expecting the amount of folks that I have seen since I've been here to be here. So obviously before coming, I looked it up, and I think Vermont is, t- is actually literally number one as like the whitest state in the United States of America. And so I, when I moved here, it was gay pride weekend. And so when I, the first night I met you was at that party and we all like took that photo at the gorilla queer part takeover. We all took that photo. And, um, I remember I had, it was posted and, um, I sent it to one of my friends and this is going to sound so horrible, but I'm like, y'all, I met black people. (laughs) And um, I was excited, though, because I think I've lived in places like New Mexico wasn't particularly the most diverse, in a sense, um, in reference to people of color. It was a lot of New Mexicans, but in reference to people of color or people that I feel like I look like me, it was not a lot of representation. Um, same thing with Plattsburgh, but Plattsburgh, like Burlington, is a college town, so you had all your college students. But once they left in the summer, it's like it died down a bit. And so for me to have grew up in Rochester, New York, and I went to a high school where the minority was white, they were the ones who were the minority, and the school was predominantly black and Puerto Rican. Um, And so 
coming here, I was already with the expectation, like, okay, it's just going to be very similar to what my experience was like in Plattsburgh, except for you're not in college, so you probably shouldn't be going downtown five days a week and getting trashed. <laughs> but I think here there happens to be a great community. I told you you were one of the first people to kind of like embrace me and to say, hey, you should come do this or come do that. And then by coming to some of the events with Glam and those events, I've gotten to meet people and then also like folks do work. Um, now, it's not a ton, but it's definitely more than I think the average person expects. And I feel like people of color here kind of, you know, they really attract to each other per se. I mean, one of my, I go to the barbershop every Saturday morning, right? And it has nothing to do with like the queer community or anything, but I go because I know that there, it's that barbershop mentality where you got the music playing and you have folks just, you know, talking about everything. And I enjoy it because it makes me feel a little bit like I'm at home because I go there and the barbershop is filled with black people. The problem with that is, is that I have to wait a long time to get my hair cut, typically two hours. Um, but it is what it is. I go every week if I can, but she's not going to be there next Saturday, which saddens me. But I guess I could try Kyle. I've just never, he's never cut my hair. And you know how it can be like finding, and once you find a barber that you enjoy, you want to stick to them. Cause I also got a big ass fucking forehead. And so I don't need my hairline pushed back any further. <laughs> and I feel like Danny, she knows how to work that. Mm-hmm. And I would not be like, I had two barbers. I had, um, humble and he, he was, a, he was from Africa. He had a little spot. It was cheap. But then if I wanted to like feel glamorous and have like a pedicure and manicure at the same time, I would go to Abdullah at his Bavarian gentleman salon. Because out there, um, a lot of things were separated in reference to your gender. So men had their own salons and women had their own. And we were not allowed in each other's salons. Interesting, right? When do you feel most browning out? When do I feel the most browning out? Every day. I do. Um, I like it was this crazy as I've never I never had a conversation with my family like I'm I'm gay. It was understood. And I think part of that comes from a little bit of the black culture. Right. We don't have to talk about it. It's just understood. And so I remember like right before I went to college, my oldest sister was like, you know, me and mommy was talking and are you gay? And I was like, who wants to know? I said, if anyone wants to know, they can ask me directly. I'm like, are you asking for yourself or for mommy? And she's like, oh, I'm just asking for myself. And I was like, and at that time, I, when she asked me, I hadn't done anything with the guy. I just knew that I had an attraction to them and I had only done things with girls. And so I was like, I'm curious. I'm like, but I, if I did experiment, it probably wouldn't be here because I feel like words would get back. And I knew I was going to college in New York. And so that's when I thought I was going to experience it. But it ended up not happening that way. It happened in Rochester, in my hometown. Then I left. <laughs> but um, so, but with that being said, I've bought, brought boyfriends home, right? And I've been open about myself. I mean, my most recent, one of my Facebook posts literally said, I got one gay more relationship in me. <laughs> I got one more gay relationship in me. I think you saw it. Yeah. 
that little thing, which sparked a little bit of confrontation in my DMs from one person because he felt like I was making fun of the Bible, which I really wasn't. But what did the status say again? What did it say? It says, I got one gay. I got one more gay relationship in me before I do what the Bible says. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see how that might be a little controversial. It, it, It can be. But at the same time, I think his way of coming at it was just like more so like you need to follow the Bible. But in my head, I'm like, are you following the Bible? You're also gay. Like, you sleep with men. So you can't tell me to follow something that you're not doing. Yeah, it seems like the inherent joke was sort of you being fed up with, with the dating scene a little bit. That's really where it came from. And, and I'm glad you got it. And this person just kind of took it and ran with it in a different direction. Deep. So, so you feel like... um for you being brown and out is just living day to day. Yeah. Every um, day it's just how you live. Unapologetic. Unapologetically. Damn, I can't speak. Do it, do it one more time. We're going to use the last one, Rizzo Take. Nope. I am authentically myself all the time. Um, I don't feel like, and I think I, when I was younger and when I was home, I felt like it was like a little double lifestyle, right? In front of family, I present it one way. And with certain friends, I present it one way. And then with other friends, I present it another way. Like, oh, let's, let's go to this house party. And um, I was always like the designated driver. I was the only friend who had a car. So I was always the designated driver at that time. But once I went away to college and I started like coming into my own, it's just like, I, I'm going to be me. It is what it is. And um if I come home and I'm wearing a and I'm wearing a romper, I'm still gonna walk through the hood with the romper on. Like ain't nobody gonna do nothing to me. If I'm we go into a family barbecue at the park, I'm wearing pink or whatever I want to wear. And if someone got an issue with it, they got an issue with it. But I'm still gonna be me. And and there was one point in time where a member of my family said I needed Jesus because of the lifestyle I was I was living, and so that kind of sparked me to be to be even more outlandish, like fine you don't got to be around me if you don't if you don't like my energy or the presence that i bring that's fine but you don't like i don't feel like i need jesus because i am a man who likes men um but we're all good now that was like some years ago it did hurt my feelings though but i never had like a conversation with my mom before but for my graduation um with my master's degree my family came down to dc my graduation was held in the national harbor at the gaylord um resort crazy right (laughs) which there are this amazing resorts all around the united states but it's called the gaylord um but there was one night and it was the day before my graduation and i remember this verbatim i had told my my sister my oldest sister was like oh let's go like have a drink somewhere and i'm like oh okay you know let's like we'll get an uber and we'll go in i don't know and i felt like my mom was plotting she pulled the covers off her and she was fully dressed and she's like y'all not leaving me at this hotel and i'm like okay and i was like mom we're going to a gay bar and she was like, so, do they got liquor? <laughs> so we went, and um, while we were there, like, there was a few people who tried to talk to me. And I think that was, like, one of my mom's first times without me having to say something, like, really seeing it. And, like, this one guy literally was like, who are you with? I'm like, oh, my mom and my sister. She's like, you brought your mama to a gay bar? And I'm like, yeah. Like, it is what it is. I mean, I will party with my mom. It is what it is. That's like my ace boom coon. And so um, he was like, oh, so he had asked her to dance. My mom danced with him, and then she wanted to smoke a cigarette. So she was like, come outside with me. I want to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, goodness, here we go. This is, this is about to be this 
crazy conversation where it's like, so you gay? Like that sort of thing. Like not in a bad way, but like finally I would have to say it. And she was like, I just want to let you know the whole time that that man was dancing with me, all he did was talk about you and said he wanted to get your number, but he wanted to get my permission first. And I'm like, uh, this is awkward, ma. And she was like, is this how it happens? <laughs> and I'm like, how what happens? She was like, people in the clubs, do, like, do they try and talk to you? And I'm like, it just depends on where I'm at, I guess. I'm not everyone's cup of tea. And so she had looked at me and she was like, I just want to let you know I'm so proud of you. And you continue living your life and you live the best one. And she said, but bring me along for some of the fun. <laughs> and so, you know, I have fun with my mom. I've taken her when she came, when I got her, I flew her out to Abu Dhabi my first year there. And everything I did, she did. If I went to a day party, she was at the party with me. She was the life of the party at one of them. It actually got to the point that I got annoyed. Some of my friends were like, when is your mom coming back? Hello, I'm here. Why do we got to bring her back? I'm here. They're like, your mom was so fun. We had so much fun with her. But um, I think, and then after that, there was one time, so my mother has never, ever called anyone my boyfriend. But one time I did bring a guy home. I brought all my boyfriends home. I had never introduced him as my boyfriends, but his name, I brought him home. And I, I was like, oh, I'm so nervous. And I was a little nervous because I come from a very, on my mom's side, it's a very black family. And his uh, interracial dating was like, not like a real thing, right? And he was white. And I remember my mom walked in. I was like a little nervous. Like, I hope she don't say nothing crazy. Like, don't be that. Don't be that. Don't let the Memphis come out of you, ma. But she didn't. She was just like, she was like, this is your boyfriend? And that was her first time ever saying it. And I'm like, yes, it is. And she was like, he is so fine. <laughs> and I'm like, he, he can hear you. He's right here. And she was like, oh, I can tell him. She said, baby, you fine. <laughs> um. I think so. My mom, I saw so I, like my family, like all knows it. And so I, when I said I'm out, I'm out in a sense of I don't have to say I'm gay for them to understand it. It's, it is understood. But there there's never been like that conversation. Like I have some friends who's had like these coming out stories with their family. And it's like, oh, we still love you no matter what. All of these sort of things. I didn't have that story. The love that is there is already is inherent. Right. But I just never had that. But I still am me to the fullest. Is there anything else that you want to mention before we end our time here on Brown and Out? Um, I don't know. I think I need to, what I do want to mention is that I need a fucking car. I am tired of walking. That, oh, if anyone can help Terrence out yeah. <laughs> with a car. Maybe I'll start a GoFundMe. People start GoFundMe for everything. For anything. Literally. Yeah. I support you. I'll give you $5. <laughs> Listen, five dollars is better than nothing. Five dollars is five dollars. Five dollars is five dollars. If you don't want it, I won't give it to you. You know but what? If you do, you don't have to give me five dollars. <laughs> it's okay. I think that um, I'll take time and continue to save. I would have had a car by now, but I paid off my private student loan. So there's that. So I guess there's like a trade-off, right? I got rid of some debt. And now I can save to get a car because I definitely don't want a car payment at all because I already got to pay car insurance. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, now nah, let me start. <laughs> no, thank you for um, having me. We have been trying to schedule this for like a while. I know. And finally it's here. Um, 
Finally, it's happened to me. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. You know, I have a song for everything. And I've been wanting to do my songs, but I'm just like, every time there's a line that comes out. Yeah. I like do you have action. anything else? No. Anything else you need to get out? I, I, there's nothing else that I need to get out. Okay. I'm ca- no, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, but real fast, like, I'm going to tell you how crazy sometimes I can be. Me and my best friend, we have literally had voice note conversations with each other talking in song. I have a song for everything. That sounds normal. That sounds really... When I was a human services major, normal's just a setting on a washing machine. Mic drop. <laughs>